From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Thursday, July 27th, 2023. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, a Chinese delegation's in North Korea for a ceremony marking the 70th anniversary of the armistice agreement on the Korean Peninsula. Niger has closed its border and ordered a curfew after the army removed the president from power. And China's nationwide campaign to clean up its public washrooms is changing lives in many rural communities. In business, the U.S. Fed's raised interest rates once again. In sports, the games have already begun in Chengdu ahead of the opening ceremony for the World University Games. In culture and entertainment, the new Sanxingdui Museum building has opened in Sichuan Province. Now the day's top stories. Well, Thursday marks the 70th anniversary of the signing of the Armistice Agreement, which ended fighting on the Korean Peninsula. A high-level Chinese delegations visiting North Korea to attend commemorative activities to mark the occasion. The Chinese People's Volunteer Army fought in the war to resist U.S. aggression and aid Korea between 1950 and 1953. Zheng Qing is in Pyongyang and has more about the Chinese delegation's visit. The delegation was invited by the Workers' Party of the DPRK and the government. It's being led by Li Hongzhong, a member of the political bureau of the CPC Central Committee. After flying to Pyongyang Wednesday, the delegation had a meeting with Che Longhai, chairman of the Standing Committee of the DPRK, Supreme People's Assembly, the fourth vice president of the State Affairs Commission. On Thursday, schedule is a visit to Friendship Tower and the Fatherland Liberation War Victory Museum, followed by commemorative report conference before military parade to mark Victory Day. On the third day of the visit, the delegation is due to visit Huichang Country by special train before flying back to Beijing in the evening. 
It's the first time the DPRK has invited other countries' delegations to attend domestic events in Pyongyang after COVID pandemic. That was Zhang Qing in Pyongyang. Chinese People's Volunteer Army, or rather China's People's Volunteer Army, joined the fight at the request of the DPRK. U.S.-led forces supporting the southern end of the Korean Peninsula sent air and naval forces to China's Dandong in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, China considered this a violation of its territorial integrity. In 1950, the newly founded People's Republic of China decided to defend national security and help its neighbor. Hundreds of thousands of Chinese people volunteered to take up arms. For those who could not go to the front lines, they tried to help out in their own ways. Uh, Soon Tianyuan has a story of how workers at a train factory in Dalian offered their support. 93-year-old Zhou Reiming worked at the train factory in 1950, the year when the flames of the Korean War spread to the Chinese border. But Zhou didn't go to the front lines. His fight was here on the assembly line. We worked day and night at the factory. That was our battlefield and the machines were our weapons. At the time, all we wanted was to make more trains and save every penny for the factory. That's how we played our part in the war. Joe's factory was tasked with manufacturing trains bound for the battlefield, a vital contribution to supply lines while the employees volunteered to work extra hours for free. They also donated half of their extra income to raise funds for war playing. Our salaries were around 33 to 39 yuan. Some people donated half of their monthly income, even all of it. Some of the family members sold chickens and eggs to raise the money. They all wanted to contribute. In 1950s China, a family of five could live on 50 yuan a month. The workers donated a total of 670 million yuan in old currency and purchased a fighter jet. It was named the Dalian Railway Factory Workers. The money was raised in just six months. And while donating a new plane, the factory also sent 93 employees to join the fight on the frontier. During the war, the factory also repaired over 4,500 trains and vehicles from the battlefield. That was Sun Tianyuan reporting. Lyricist Wu Dawei is a former member of the Chinese People's Volunteer Army. He drew inspiration from experiences in the war to write songs about peace. Chung Saran sat down with the veteran about composing music, remembering history, and cherishing peace. The song of Red Star is known to every Chinese national. Its lyrics were written by 90-year-old war veteran Wu Dawei. In 1952, he joined the Chinese People's Volunteer Army and fought in the war to resist U.S. aggression and aid Korea for five years. After the war, he stayed in the army as a lyricist. The song of Red Star was written in 1973 when I was 40. It's the theme song for the film Sparkling Red Star. When reading the film script, I immediately build emotional connection with the protagonist, who grows up in the army and strengthens the belief in our path. First, I put the word Red Star in every line of the lyrics. It was later adopted into the textbooks for school children. Wu Dawei always finds the life and experiences of soldiers as his source of inspiration. 
He also composed the lyrics of another beloved song in China, where the peach blossoms bloom. I visited the soldiers guarding the nation's northern border in 1969. It was minus 40 degrees Celsius. In a world of ice and snow, the breath they took through their mask even froze their eyebrows. I asked a young man what the cold felt like. He said it was like being scratched and beaten by cats. I then asked how he managed in such harsh conditions. He told me that he's from the south, and in his hometown, the cherry blossom should have bloomed. Seeing the snowflakes all around, like the petals, made him think of home and warm his heart. The story touched us all very deeply. All Chinese love cherry blossoms, and every Chinese person can relate to sheer will of safeguarding our nation and home. Wu Dawei retired in the year 2000, but continues to compose. He hopes to inspire the youth today with his memories and endeavors. This tea mug was a gift to us, the Volunteer Army. I took it back and put it on my library desk. It reminds me of my comrades who sacrificed their young lives on the Korean Peninsula. I strive to make every day count to remember them. I hope this generation of youth can seize the chance of today's peace and make our motherland prosperous. Heroes will never die so long as their tunes live on. Their stories, commemorated by the lyrics, help us cherish and safeguard today's peace and prosperity. That was Jiang Saran with the story of how a veteran perceives war and peace. China's People's Liberation Army Air Force has performed stunts as part of its Open Day activities. Sophisticated plane models pulled off gravity-defying demonstrations that impressed the audience. Jiao Yunfei spoke with some of those in attendance. A lineup of J-20 stealth fighter jets, J-16 multi-role combat planes, and the YY-20 aerial refueling aircraft. Pilots performing high-angle climbs and low-altitude maneuvers. It's one of the highlights of the PLA Air Force Open Day activities, with both the general public and PLA's newest aviation students in the audience. It is a special honor for us because our enrollment comes at the time of the air show. The air show is our orientation, which is also an encouragement to us. I was excited when the J20 flew over my head. The roar of the J20 engine made me very excited and brought tears to my eyes. I feel that our air force has become stronger. The air show has attracted a large audience. Organizers say they are expecting to host about 700,000 people in five days. It's the presentation of the spirit and pride of the PLA Air Force. Our Chinese Air Force is so powerful. The performance is spectacular. The pilot skills are so good. I'm very impressed. The organizers say the opening day activities give opportunity for the general public to have a close contact with the PLA Air Force. And popularize knowledge about the country's aerospace capability. That was Zhao Yunfei reporting. Coming up, Niger's army has ousted the country's president. July 27th marks the 70th anniversary of the victory of the war to resist U.S. aggression and aid Korea. Why did China have to fight a war against the world's most powerful country? Just months after the People's Republic was founded, how were the poorly equipped Chinese soldiers able to compel the U.S. to sign an armistice agreement? 
70 years later, Deep Dive is revisiting the war on the Korean Peninsula. Available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Just search for Deep Dive. 11 minutes past the hour. A group of soldiers say the army has removed Niger President Mohamed Bazoum from power. African organizations called the move an attempted coup against the country's democratically elected leader. Niger residents have expressed their worries. As a citizen, I think what's happening is condemnable and regrettable. We think our country has gone beyond this kind of situation, that of destabilizing the institutions of the republic. For the moment, we don't know what's going on. Nigerians are worried. I'm personally worried about my president. Colonel Amadou Abdramane says Niger's borders are closed, a nationwide curfew declared, and all institutions of the republic are suspended. The soldiers have warned against any foreign intervention, adding that they'll uh, respect the president's well-being. The West African regional bloc ECOWAS uh, has called for the immediate release of the president. China is calling on parties in Niger to resolve differences through dialogue. A foreign ministry spokesperson says China calls on the parties to respect the fundamental interests of the people and to safeguard peace and stability in the country. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan says China's development is not a threat. He met with visiting senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi in Ankara and called for closer cooperation under the Belt and Road Initiative. Erdogan uh, said Turkey does not support NATO's increasing presence in Asia-Pacific. Wang urged China and Turkey to deepen political trust and promote strategic and practical cooperation. The Chinese diplomat also met Turkish Foreign Minister Hakan Fidan. Mihal Bardavid reports from Ankara. Wang Yi stated that disputes should be resolved through dialogue and consultation. He also stressed that China aims to work with Turkey to advance cooperation within the Belt and Road Initiative. On economic cooperation, China's senior Chinese diplomat said his country is willing to import more high-quality products from Turkey and encourage more Chinese enterprises to invest in the country. Hakan Fidan added that the two countries can strengthen cooperation in various fields, including energy, aviation and tourism. The leaders also discussed regional issues, including the latest developments in Ukraine. Mr. Wang Yi's visit to Turkey follows his participation at a two-day meeting of the BRICS National Security Advisors in Johannesburg, South Africa. So the leaders also had the opportunity to discuss economic cooperation with just a month left until the 15th BRICS summit that will take place in South Africa in uh, August. That was Mihal Bardavid on senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi's visit to Turkey. Uh, Typhoon Doxuri has killed at least six people in the Philippines. The storm has toppled trees and left thousands without power. The weather system is making its way toward the southeastern parts of the Chinese mainland now. Before it makes landfall between Fujian and Guangdong provinces, the typhoon dumped heavy downpours on Taiwan, killing at least one person. Andy Lee reports from Taipei. The island of Taiwan is experiencing the impact of Typhoon Doxuri. The trees are swaying hard due to the strong wind, and we have heavy rain on the island. The entire island is feeling strong wind and heavy rain. Now, in fact, in the Pingdong County, eastern part of the island, many roads are closed due to mudslide warnings. And in fact, in the area where they do have mudslide warnings, entire villages in the mountains are evacuated for the safety of the residents. Another county, in Hualien County, also on eastern Taiwan, 
There are many flash floods in addition to mudslides. And in fact, one person has been washed away by flash flood and found to have been drowned. This is the one single fatality casualty thus far on the island of Taiwan. That was Andy Lee reporting amid Typhoon Doksuri in Taiwan. On the mainland, more than 40,000 rescuers and five helicopters are on standby for emergencies. Wildfires across Greece have abated, but firefighters are still battling on several fronts, including on Rhodes Island. Authorities have downgraded the risk uh, to three on a scale of one to five. Uh, more than 20,000 holidaymakers and locals have been leaving the resort island. Evangelo Sipsis reports. Helen finally made it to the airport. She was supposed to leave last Saturday, but her summer holiday was extended because of the wildfires. The only thing on her mind now is getting home. So we missed our flight because all the roads were closed because the fire was across the road. So we've been here longer, so we're very exhausted and we want to get home now. Although for the first few hours everything seemed calm, safe and far away, the scene changed quickly for Helen and her daughter, with smoke covering them in a few minutes. We were told we were safe because we were nowhere near the fire. So we, we just thought we could, we could just see it and smell it and we, the flames were, it was like orange and black smoke coming over. But we were just told, we're not near the fire, you're safe, it's just the flames. But then the smoke got thicker so we had to be evacuated. Scary. The wildfires that broke out over a week ago forced the evacuation of thousands of tourists. As the fire reached the resorts and hotels, many scrambled to find a seat on buses, while others hugged their suitcases fleeing on pickup trucks. And some decided to drive anywhere away from the fires. So we're trying to get outside, going south. What, what, are the, what are the authorities telling you? Just get out, straight away. That's what we're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Stay safe. Thank you, and you. At the airport, things are now calm. While thousands of tourists continue to arrive trying to get home, they are greeted by long queues, but also helpful representatives from different countries. They are here to make their journey a bit more pleasant. Germany, Austria, Italy and the United Kingdom have all sent government representatives to assist people who have lost their belongings, their documents, their flights or those who just need some support. Though the first couple of days the airport here was total chaos, things now seem to be moving smoother. The first day was uh, difficult because of the number of the people that have been uh, affected and because it was something unprecedented and uh, uh, sudden. Um, however, uh, with goodwill from all sides, uh, we managed to tackle the situation. While the wildfires continue to burn on the popular island of Rhodes, it has become a nightmare for many locals and tourists. A nightmare that seems to have ended for Helen. That was um, uh, Evangelosipsis on Rhodes Island in Greece. You're listening to the Beijing Hour coming up, China's nationwide campaign to clean up the country's public washrooms. Chengdu, a city known for its buzzing nightlife and giant pandas, as well as being a famous foodie destination, is the host city for the 31st Summer World University Games. Athletes from over 80 countries and regions will be competing in 18 sports to fight for a chance to stand on the podium. Who are the star players? What are the highlights of the day's matches? And which team leads the medal table? 
tuning to the Beijing Hour on CGTN Radio. We'll bring you the latest news, highlights, and previews during this year's Summer World University Games in Chengdu. At uh, 19 minutes past the hour, well, in episode four of our stories from Qinghai, we look at infrastructure improvements in rural areas. Many Chinese villages have been getting a facelift following a nationwide campaign to revolutionize the much-dreaded public washrooms. The previous pungent, ghastly, hole-in-the-ground versions have gradually given way to customized individual facilities. One village in the northwest has benefited from this trend. Wang Zhihang has that story. Open pit public toilets used to be the awkward underbelly of Chinese country life, infamous for poor hygiene and a lack of privacy. They also posed a risk to public health by spreading maggots and diseases. Thankfully, since 2015, China has stepped up efforts at resolving this centuries-old headache by helping each individual rural family build their own fully equipped, modernized bathroom. Mojago is one of the villages that have benefited from this nationwide campaign. Mo Weibang is the former head of the local community. Under his watch, all households in the village swapped public latrines for clean, odor-free options by the end of 2020. All 178 families in our village, in the end, got their own toilets. We started in 2020 and finished all the work in the same year. It cost 6,000 yuan for each project, and the authorities covered nearly all the expenses. But it was not all plain sailing, as some villagers initially felt rather uneasy about giving up on the old way. Ma Jianming, who runs a little corner shop in the village, was one of the doubtful few. Many of us thought it was too inconvenient to build a family bathroom all from scratch. Plus, we were also used to the public ones. Over time, Ma saw himself how life has transformed as his neighbors began to get their own toilets. It wasn't long before Ma changed his mind. It's really convenient to have my own family bathroom, especially during the cold months. Plus, we no longer have to brave the dark village road at night to use the toilet. Now, with the old public latrines out of the way and more and more rural revitalization measures in place, Mojago has changed for the better. The village now is a popular getaway destination for urbanites to break free from the stressed city life over the weekend. Village Deputy Chief Jiang Yongxia explains. Our village now is connected to the main city road. More and more young people are coming back. Many of them have turned their village homes into guest houses for urban tourists. People in the city love the countryside. They enjoy the food and drink we make, like chicken, eggs, and yogurt. Don't you think life here is way better than in the city? Many Chinese villages have experienced similar changes in recent years. Official data shows that by 2022, over 70% of rural China had gained access to sanitary toilet facilities, and that figure is expected to only grow further as the country continues to devote more resources to revitalizing the wider countryside. For the Beijing Hour, this is Wang Zhang. We have a bonus episode today about production of an iconic cultural item in Qinghai.、Uh, Tibetan carpets are emerging as a trend in the modern era. Through the three transformative revolutions, these carpets have gained popularity globally. Sui reports. Tibetan carpets boast a history spanning thousands of years. 
more than mere decorations. The patterns of the carpets depict elements of Tibetan culture, religion, and nature. In recent years, these carpets have gained prominence as cherished decorations in modern homes worldwide. Their increasing popularity is thanks to modernizing transformations. Xue Ting, a CEO of a Tibetan carpet producer in Changzhong District, Xining, she says they utilize modern technologies to enhance the efficiency of their crafting process. Back then, Tibetan carpets were mainly handwoven in small family workshops, leading to limited production. During the first transformation, we introduced advanced machines alongside manual weaving, which shortened the production time. She says now they can make around 500,000 square meters of carpet per year. Total annual sales could reach about 80 million yuan, or roughly 11 million U.S. dollars. To cater to modern homes, design supervisor Che Guolong introduces distinct designs tailored for global customer preferences. While keeping the traditional Tibetan carpet patterns, we also add innovations using computer technology. For example, customers from Shanghai, Guangzhou, and abroad often prefer modern designs. So we created customized carpets to suit different tastes, regions, and preferences. The designs range from vivid small animals or elegant lines to landscape paintings. Meanwhile, they collaborate with universities and research centers to implement smart technologies throughout the entire production process. Dr. Sun Shikun at Tsinghua University has been in the program for several months. Making Tibetan carpets involves some manual work and specific design considerations. We are working on two things. First, we are developing different intelligent models to create carpet designs for customers to choose. Second, we integrate real product photos into AI-generated designs, ensuring the carpets get the best results. Swen also says that a model allows for the precise number of frames, sizes, and colors in each section, which in turn reduces the aesthetic demands on employees. But the hand-knotted Tibetan rug is still the specialty of the production chains. The factory mostly hires local villagers, making up about 70% of the workforce. In 2021, Qinghai Province manufactured Tibetan carpets valued at over 390 million yuan, or about 55 million U.S. dollars, exporting them to more than 40 countries and regions. The growing Tibetan carpet industry has also created job opportunities for tens of thousands of individuals, becoming an effective way to help local villagers achieve prosperity. Now, more and more young talents who are specialized in smart technology are joining the carpet industry. They bring in fresh energy and momentum while preserving the heritage. For the Beijing Hour, this is Sui. On Friday, we check out a popular night market to conclude our series. We hope you won't miss it. Students in Florida have a new curriculum on African American history when they return to school next month. Civil groups, activists, and educators are outraged at what they think is an attempt to cover up racism. Nitsa Soledad Perez has details. Nothing was removed, including、uh, what what we continue to say: it's the the good, the bad, and the ugly in American history. Despite protests and claims of inaccuracy. The Florida Board of Education has approved a controversial new curriculum for African American history. 
Starting this fall, students in grades 6 through 8 will be taught that slavery had personal benefits for some black people, who the State Education Board says developed skills while enslaved. I think that they're probably going to show um, some of the folks that eventually parlayed uh, you know, being a blacksmith into, into doing things later, later in life. The new standards are part of Governor DeSantis' political agenda to eliminate what he calls liberal indoctrination in public schools. It's quickly become a national story. Vice President Kamala Harris came to Florida last week to denounce the move. It involved some of the worst examples of, of, of depriving people of humanity in our world. Opponents also criticize a curriculum for depicting violence against black communities as mutual, two-sided fights rather than racist attacks. The Florida Education Association, a statewide teachers union with 150,000 members, calls the new rules a step backward. Meanwhile, civil rights organizations of Florida have been galvanizing support for the upcoming local elections to undo recent education laws they deem racist. They say it's an all-out attack on black Americans and black history. They have banned ideas, and that's the first sign of decline in a society. The law allowing these changes to be adopted by the state's Department of Education is being challenged in court. Earlier this year, the DeSantis administration rejected a College Board Advanced Placement course on African American history. The governor and Republican presidential hopeful has been using cultural wars in his fight to win his party's nomination. And that was Nitsa Soledad Perez on a controversial new curriculum in Florida. We're at 28 past the hour. Beijing's at 24 degrees overnight. Friday, we'll see a light rainfall in 30 Celsius. A typhoon Doxuri has struck Taiwan. Hualien will see heavy rainfall in a low of 25. Uh, tomorrow, moderate rainfall. The high is 31 degrees. Chongqing's at 25 this evening, then moderate rainfall in 31. Last is down to 10 overnight, then cloudy in 22. Hong Kong's at 26 this evening. It'll see a rainstorm tomorrow in 32 degrees Celsius. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, Chinese delegations in North Korea for a ceremony marking the 70th anniversary of the armistice agreement on the Korean Peninsula. Niger has closed its border and ordered a curfew after the army removed the president from power. And China's nationwide campaign to clean up its public washrooms is changing lives in many rural communities. Shane Bigham with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, 60 minutes of comprehensive news, your window on China and the world. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Thursday. Still to come. In business, the U.S. Fed has raised interest rates once again. In sports, the games have already begun in Chengdu ahead of the opening ceremony for the World University Games. In culture and entertainment, the new Sanxingdui Museum building has opened in Sichuan province. To contact us, you can email beijinghour at cri.com.cn or follow our Twitter account at CGTN Radio. Now, a check of the day's headline news. Guyanese President Irfan Ali and Indonesian President Joko Widodo are among the leaders that have arrived in Chengdu as the city gears up for the opening ceremony of the World University Games on Friday. Competitions already underway in the southwestern city. Athletes are competing in individual and team events in archery and men's water polo. Reporter Tian Yu will bring details from Chengdu later in the program.
A delegation of military officers in Niger says the armies removed President Mohamed Bazoum from power. Colonel Amadou Abramane said that they have put an end to the regime due to the country's deteriorating security situation and bad governance. We, the forces of defense and security, have reunited as the National Council for the Safeguarding of the Country, CNSP, and have decided to put an end to the regime which you know. This is the result of the continuing degradation of the security situation, the decline of economy and social governance. The officers warned against any foreign intervention, adding that Bazoum's well-being will be respected. Earlier, there were reports that the presidential guard had blockaded the presidential palace. The West African regional bloc ECOWAS has called for the immediate release of the president, and the U.S. has urged for a peaceful end to the violence. Ukraine's security services claim responsibility for an attack on the Crimea Bridge last year. The agency says it carried out the operation that damaged the Kerch, uh, the Kerch Bridge linking Crimea. Russian officials at the time said a truck blew up while crossing the bridge, killing three people. The bridge suffered fresh strikes earlier this month. The security service did not address that attack. Russian President Vladimir Putin and New Development Bank President Dilma Rousseff have met during the Russia-Africa summit in St. Petersburg. It's reported that the bank is not considering new projects in Russia as it operates in line with restrictions imposed in financial markets. Yet, Rousseff says that any speculation concerning the discussion of new operations of the bank in Russia were unfounded. The former president of Brazil says they've discussed the role of the bank at the upcoming BRICS summit in South Africa next month. The NDB is a multilateral bank set up by the BRICS states, including Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. The judge handling the case of the son of U.S. President Joe Biden says she needs more time to review the proposed deal with prosecutors. Hunter Biden was expected to plead guilty to tax charges and avoid a gun charge. Biden's leading uh, rival in the presidential race, uh, former President Donald Trump, and Trump's Republican allies in Congress have criticized the deal as unfairly favoring the president's son. Hunter Biden previously pleaded not guilty to charges of failing to pay taxes on more than 1.5 million U.S. dollars of income in 2017 and 18, despite owing more than $100,000. The water temperature on the tip of Florida has hit hot tub levels, exceeding 37.8 degrees Celsius two days in a row. Meteorologist Jeff Masters says this could potentially be the hottest seawater ever measured, although there are some issues with the reading. There is no official record kept for sea surface temperature. But if you look at some official buoys run by national agencies, we've never seen a record-breaking event like this before. I mean, 101.1 degrees Fahrenheit, that's never been measured before. But there are some questions with that record, and there's some good reason to believe that it might have been a few degrees cooler than that. Well, scientists have seen devastating effects from prolonged hot water surrounding Florida. They've seen coral bleaching and death in what had been one of the Florida Keys' most resilient reefs. This comes as climate change has been setting temperature records across the globe this month. The European Union says it wants to sign contracts this year for up to 12 firefighting planes to improve its ability to combat blazes fueled by climate change. The EU has already expanded its existing reserve fleet of leased aircraft to 28. The European Commission says it wants to fully own the new purchase. 
United Nations agencies have stressed that goals to reach food sustainability are far from being reached. Food and Agriculture Organization Director General Chu Dongyu has addressed the vitality of global food security during a food summit in Rome. We are far from achieving the SDGs by 2030. In a world where the projections show 600 million people will be hungry by 2030, transforming global agriculture is not a choice. It must be to ensure food security for all. Well, the summit aims to take stock of progress and setbacks since the first food systems summit was held in 2021. The summit's drawn participants from over 160 countries. That's your headline news update. This is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital. And coming up in business, the U.S. Fed has raised interest rates once again. Looking for the hottest trends in China? Craving captivating podcasts and stories from our reporters? Get in the know and follow CGTN Radio on Twitter and stay informed. We're at 37 past the hour, turning to business now, and stock markets on the Chinese mainland finished lower on Thursday. Timothy Pope has more. The Chinese mainland markets had a strong morning, but uh, they seem to lack energy after the lunchtime trading halt. The Shanghai Composite Index surrendered uh, its early gains to close about two-tenths of one percent lower. The Shenzhen Component Index ended down about four-tenths of a percent. Investors seem to be taking a mixed message from the latest industrial profits data. Uh, the decline uh, in profits at industrial firms obviously being uh, less severe, which is good news, but the fall uh, still almost 17 percent uh, in the first half of the year, leaving plenty of room for improvement. Financial and consumer stocks were the best performance of the day. We saw uh, China's big banks contributing the most to the gains on the Shanghai Composite. Agricultural Bank of China was up 1.7% and ICBC rose by 1.5%. Liquor makers uh, also got a bit of a boost. One company really soaring was the aircraft instrument maker Zhonghang Electronic. Uh, its shares advanced by 20% in Shenzhen after it bought the Chinese fighter jet maker Chengdu Aircraft Industrial Group from the state-owned aviation giant AVIC. The price tag was uh, 17.5 billion yuan, or a shade under 2.5 billion US dollars. This is more of a restructuring than a major asset sale, but it does uh, improve stock market access to the sector. Having these assets uh, on the listed units books and uh, investors clearly uh, wanted a piece of those uh, assets uh, with the gains that we saw. Now as market analyst Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index gained more than 1.4%. In Japan, the Nikkei rose around 7 tenths of a percent. U.S. Federal Reserve has raised interest rates again following a hotly anticipated two-day meeting. The Federal Open Market Committee announced a 25 basis points increase to the range of 5.25% to 5.5%, potentially rounding off the U.S. Central Bank's most aggressive monetary tightening cycle in over two decades. Benji Heyer reports from Washington, D.C. This was never really a question of whether the Fed would raise rates or really by how much, but instead a question of if this is the end move, the culmination of the campaign to quell stubbornly high inflation. The bank's 11 straight hikes recently, up more than five percentage points since early last year, has helped push inflation down from 9% then, a 40-year high, to about 3% now. Still above the 2% target, yes, yet many traders believe it's close enough for Wednesday's decision to mark the Federal Reserve's final increase of this cycle. Now, 
Fed Chair Jerome Powell in a press conference earlier didn't publicly signal that. And for good reason. He'll still want to retain the flexibility to tighten monetary policy further should prices fail to continue easing in the coming months. My colleagues and I remain squarely focused on our dual mandate to promote maximum employment and stable prices for the American people. We understand the hardship that high inflation is causing, and we remain strongly committed to bringing inflation back down to our 2% goal. Price stability is the responsibility of the Federal Reserve. These changes, however incremental, can over time have a profound impact on the economy, on growth and on Americans' wallets. Each time rates go up, so does the cost of borrowing for consumers. The Fed's next steps beyond July will ultimately depend on what economic data shows going forward. It says it'll monitor financial markets and global developments closely before its next meeting in September. That was Benji Heyer reporting. Volkswagen's announced a strategic technical collaboration with Chinese EV startup Xpeng. Uh, the goal is to jointly develop two electric vehicles in China. As part of the deal, Volkswagen will invest around 700 million U.S. dollars and take a near 5% stake in Xpeng. Uh, the two EV models, which will carry Xpeng's G9 platform and software, start production in 2026. The 2023 National Conference on the Development of Specialized and New Small and Medium-Sized Enterprises is opened in Zhejiang Province. Ho Jing reports. According to the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology, China has cultivated 98,000 specialized small and medium-sized enterprises as well as 12,000 little giant enterprises. Out of the little giant enterprises, over 10,000 are manufacturing enterprises. Over 40% of the little giants concentrate in the fields of new materials, next-generation information technology, new energy, and smart vehicles. Over 60% of them are deeply involved with the industrial foundation. As the world continues to embrace digital transformation and the integration of manufacturing and service sectors, many speakers from enterprises, academic institutions, and other sectors have highlighted their urgent demands for innovative and interdisciplinary talents. This issue has been a key topic of discussion at the subforum, where government officials, academic experts, and business leaders have been engaging in lively debates on how best to cultivate and harness such talents to drive business growth and societal progress. Based on our own needs and advantages, we have built a technical team of 120 members with talent from both home and abroad for our research and development. We apply the mode of talent enclave. For example, some employees work in Shanghai for our research tasks. This employment mode also applies to some SMEs in big cities like Shenzhen. For recruiting core researchers, we cooperate with universities. They introduce graduate or PhD students to intern in our company and for further employment. As for technicians, we often cultivate them ourselves or send them to professional schools for further development. We will also set up an overseas lab for our foreign experts so that they can stay in their home country to conduct research with less cultural differences and living habits. As of June 30th, more than 1,600 SMEs have been listed on the Asia market, about one-third of the total amount. As shared at the conference, in the first half of 2023, more than 60% of the companies listed on the stock market were from these specialized enterprises. That was Ho Jing reporting.
With the summer holiday season in full swing, most major airlines in China have expressed more positive expectations regarding the growth of the civil aviation industry. These airlines have been gradually increasing their capacity to take advantage of the peak holiday season. Shui takes a closer look at the current rebound of the civil aviation market in China. China's tourism and civil aviation market is experiencing a robust recovery, with the country's aviation regulator reporting that the number of daily flights has rebounded to over 90% of pre-pandemic levels in the first half of this year. Yumitrip, a major aviation service platform in China, has reported that as of July, domestic airlines have executed over 7,000 inbound and outbound flights. According to Spring Airlines, a pioneer in China's private airline industry, its domestic route load factor has succeeded 90% compared to 2019 in the first six months of this year, while the number of international flights has recovered to almost 50%. During the pandemic, Spring Airlines bought more than 20 new aircraft. With the upsurge of summer holiday tourism this year, the airline is using its new aircraft on various routes. The company has also responded to emerging travel trends by launching additional flight routes, such as those catering to ecological tourism and educational excursions. Meanwhile, China has seen the return of more international airlines, such as Scoot, the low-cost airline of Singapore Airlines Group. In the first half of 2023, the number of passengers traveling by Scoot from China to Singapore has risen dramatically, with an increase from 2,500 per week in January to over 18,000 per week in July, marking a seven-fold increase in just a few months. I think this July, which is the peak summer travel period, we were, we were quite confident that the, the load factor will continue to improve further. Like pre-COVID, we fly to about 19 cities in China. So now we have recovered to 17 cities in total. So and also increasing frequency to all these 17 cities. And the resumption of China's 15-day visa-free policy for visitors from Singapore and Brunei this week marks a positive move that has instilled greater confidence among tourism industry professionals worldwide. That was Shui reporting. Indonesia is developing a scheme for banks to provide a financing facility for exporters who keep their earnings onshore. Under a new rule, natural resource exporters must retain part of their proceeds in the domestic financial system for three months if the value of the exporter items exceeds a, spe a specified threshold. The regulation has sparked a backlash from exporters. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in sports, uh, the games have already begun in Chengdu ahead of the opening ceremony for the World University Games. Starting from Friday, the Chinese city of Chengdu will be the home to the World University Games, a competition that has witnessed the starting chapters of many legendary athletes in history. What will be the highlights in Chengdu? Who will stand out as the leaders of the next generation of stars? Join our discussions this week on the Sideline Story podcast and discover the unique sports world of student athletes. At 47 minutes past the hour now and turning to sports, here's Yang Guang. Thank you, Shane. The Chengdu World University game starts Friday. The torch relay ahead of the opening ceremony has ended. The closing leg of the torch relay got underway at three universities in Chengdu before its arrival at the main venue for the games, where it will be used to light the cauldron. The relay started on June the 10th with the flame visiting campuses across China before arriving in Chengdu to begin the final stage. Chengdu is the third city 
on the Chinese mainland to host the biennial Summer Universiate, following Beijing in 2001 and Shenzhen in 2011. For more on the games, we're now on the line with correspondent Tian Yu, who is now in Chengdu. Hello, Tian Yu. First of all,、um, there have been some competitions underway already.、Uh, what are the highlights today? Well, Yangguang, today we have contests in water polo and archery. And the game between Germany and Japan in water polo was really fun to watch. It was really intense and back and forth. In the second quarter, there were six goals created by both sides in just one minute. So the tempo of the game was really quick, and it was the German side that seemed to have better stamina to win the match. And another game to watch is Team Italy against America. Both are strong teams in water polo, and Team Italy was the champion of last year's University Games. And 13 players of the team are currently playing in the Italian water polo tournament, which can be seen as the NBA in the sport. And the American players all come from UCLA, and their head coach is a member of the American team, which won the runner-up in the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games. So it was a neck-and-neck game, but it was Italy which went to prevail with a 13-11 victory eventually. Team China also had a water polo game today against Team Georgia. It was、uh, really a tough opponent for us, and Georgia was the winner. In archery, in the recurve bow team competitions, the Chinese female team has advanced to the finals by beating Team India 5-4. And next for them in the final will be traditional powerhouse Team South Korea. And in the men's side, Chinese Taipei will face South Korea in the final. Yang Guan.、Mm-hmm. Um, are there any particular athletes or events we should watch out for the following 12 days? Well, first of all, for tomorrow, I think a lot of Chinese fans will be thrilled to watch the first game in the preliminary round of women's basketball team,、uh, women's basketball matches, which is Team China against Portugal. In Team China, we have the star player Han Xu, who is the MVP, who helped China lift the trophy of this year's Asian Cup and win the runners-up in last year's World Cup. She's definitely one of the best centers in the team. And apart from Han, Liu Yutong, Sun Keqing, and Su Yuanyuan are also some of the rising stars in that squad. So there should be a lot to expect from the Chinese team. And apart from basketball and swimming, we have、uh, Zhang Yufei, who I believe is a very familiar name for us now. Because in the ongoing FINA World Championships, she just won a gold medal for Team China in 100 meters butterfly stroke, and also in the Tokyo Olympic Games, she won the two gold and two silver medals for China in different competitions. So a pretty excellent player, and I believe it's very likely for her to achieve good results here in Chengdu. And also, there are a lot of young players from other countries competing in the tournament that have shared their stories recently. One case in point would be American rowing player Billy Burke, who used to be a running athlete. But had to switch to rowing because of a knee injury, and now he's representing Team America in the University Games, which is a very inspiring case for us. So a lot of players with great poten- potential in this year's University Games, and let's keep an eye on them and see what kinds of excitement and surprises they can bring to us. Yang Guang. All right, a lot to expect indeed. That was Tian Yu on the Chengdu World University Games. Turning to swimming, Qin Haiyang led Team China to win two more gold medals at World Aquatics Championships, including his second breaststroke title at the event. The 24-year-old added the men's 50-meter breaststroke gold medal to his 100-meter triumph two days ago by beating defending champion Nick Fink. After just an hour's rest, Qin joined teammates Xu Jiayu, Zhang Yufei, and Cheng Yujie to seal Team China's first mixed four by 100-meter medley relay title. To be honest, I didn't perform as well as my teammates because I just competed in the 50-meter breaststroke, which took some energy. I got this gold medal thanks to my teammates' excellent performances.
Jin, who swam the second leg, became the first swimmer to win three gold medals at the Fukuoka Worlds. It was also Zhang Yufei's second gold medal at the tournament. I got the second gold, which is the result of everyone's effort. Compared to the 100-meter butterfly, I felt more nervous today. I'm afraid of making small mistakes that could affect the whole team. But in the end, I'm satisfied with my performance today. Elsewhere, Francis Liam Marchand also completed a golden double with a victory in the men's 200-meter butterfly title following his 400-meter individual medley victory. In the women's 200-meter freestyle, Molly O'Callaghan broke the 14-year world record as she led Australia to a 1-2 finish. At the FIFA Women's World Cup, defending champion the United States squeezed out a one-all draw against the Netherlands in a 2019 tournament final rematch. The Dutch struck first with a goal from Gio Root in the first half to surprise the Americans, who depended on Lindsay Horan's goal to remain unbeaten in 19 consecutive matches. Team USA and the Netherlands are both on four points in Group E. Canada secured its first victory at this year's Women's World Cup, beating Ireland 2-1. An accurate toe poke by forward Adriana Leon, coupled with a touch of fortune, allowed Canada to gain three points while sending Ireland packing. Irish captain Katie McCabe scored country's first ever goal at a Women's World Cup, but saw her team knocked out after two straight losses. Yeah, look, obviously we're heartbroken with the results. What I am is very proud of the team and how we performed and how we gave it everything right until the very end. I thought we started the game really well, lots of energy. Um, obviously disappointing to concede the goal um, so close to half-time. But we didn't let it get our heads down. We still started the second half with energy and obviously we're, we're bitterly disappointed. Elsewhere, Portugal beat Vietnam 2-0 to keep hopes of life to progress to the last 16. And finally, China will face South Korea and Thailand as well as the winner between Singapore and Gwen in Group C in the second stage of the 2026 World Cup Asian qualifiers. The top two finishes of the nine groups will progress to the next stages of qualification, which will determine who from the continent gets spots from the World Cup. The 18 teams will also earn 2027 Asian Cup final spots. Thank you very much. That was Yang Guang with sports. Coming up in culture, uh, the new Sanxing Dui Museum building has opened in Sichuan province. The Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X-Men Days of Future Past. You are listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi, everyone. I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. 54 minutes past the hour. In culture, the new building of the Sanxing Dui Museum in Sichuan Province has started trial operation. Nearly 600 relics unearthed from the renowned Sanxing Dui ruins are displayed for the public for the first time. Uh, the new facility is five times bigger than the old museum building. Uh, relics including pottery, bronze, jade, and gold are in the exhibition, and among the highlights uh, are a nearly four-meter-high sacred bronze tree, golden masks, and bronze-standing figurines all dating back around 3,000 years. Well, China's Palace Museum is bursting with excitement as they reveal a set of 20,000 high-definition digital images uh, showcasing their cultural relics. Uh, together with tech giant Tencent, they officially launched an innovation lab bringing the treasured heritage into the digital age. Young Yan spoke with the project directors from the museum and from Tencent. Here in the Palace Museum, the Joint Innovation Lab covers an area of around 450 square meters. 
The space facilitates the digitization of cultural artifacts collected in the museum. The goal is to improve the quality of the digitization with the cutting-edge technology, as well as to speed up the process. We all know that behind the open sharing of digital resources lies the powerful production capacity of cultural relics data resources. With the support of the Joint Innovation Lab, we will further apply advanced technologies such as digital twin, big data, AI, and cloud computing to the digitization and protection of cultural relics, and form a fully integrated intelligence production and management system. We will set an example for the cultural and museum industry with the application of new technologies in the collection and processing of cultural heritage data. An intelligent management platform turns the laboratory into a networked smart building, with the help of digital twins, cloud computing, big data, and artificial intelligence technologies. The data collection environment can be meticulously managed and controlled. Real-time adjustment of temperature and humidity is just one button away through the platform. The cultural relics are protected throughout the data collecting process. Which ensures accuracy and efficiency, and sustainable preservation. The integration and development of technology and culture is also gradually deepening in our practice. At present, we're exploring the advanced digital technology to apply in cultural heritage protection and research. We are also dedicated to finding smart solutions. For the sustainable preservation of the world's cultural heritage, this is the original intention of our joint laboratory. The audio and video collection area seamlessly integrates real-time content with 3D digital models. Experts can immerse themselves in 3D scenes of ancient buildings, such as the Qianlong Garden or the Hall of Spiritual Cultivation, and interact with 3D models of cultural relics. And、that was Yang Yan on the digital display of the cultural relics of the Palace Museum. We're at 58 minutes past the hour now. Beijing's at 24 degrees overnight. Friday we'll see a slight rainfall, and the high is 30.、Uh, Typhoon Doxuri has struck Taiwan.、Uh, Hualien will see heavy rainfall in 25 this evening. Then、uh, tomorrow moderate rain and 31 degrees Celsius. Chongqing's at 25 this evening. Tomorrow some rain and 31. Lasts down to 10 this evening. Then cloudy in 22. Hong Kong's at 26 tonight. It'll see a rainstorm tomorrow in 32 degrees. Elsewhere, Tokyo's 27 this evening. Then a slight rain in 35 on Friday. Islamabad will have a slight rain in 23 this evening, followed by a high of 29 tomorrow. Bangkok's at 26 tonight. Then a slight rain in 36 degrees Celsius. That's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today: a Chinese delegations in North Korea for a ceremony marking the 70th anniversary of the armistice agreement on the Korean Peninsula. Li Shares closes border and ordered a curfew after the army removed the president from power. On behalf of the staff, Shane Bigam in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together.